We have a good crowd today, and we're certainly glad to see everyone who's here this morning. And uh, my prayer is, as in harmony with Terry's prayer this morning, is that the teaching part of my responsibility this morning will be to edify you this morning, the body of Christ. Uh, I'm not sure that this has been taught on uh, for a while here at this congregation, but uh, it's always been an interesting subject to me. And I just hope and pray that I'll be able to uh, delve into the uh, subject matter this morning and explain it in such a way that all of us can understand. The providence of God is a deep, deep subject. And uh, there's quite a few different ideas about what it is and how it works and so on and so forth. And uh, I want to take a few minutes with you uh, and see if we can figure out exactly what God has to say in his word about this uh, wonderful subject. First of all, uh, in some uh, remarks that I need to make before we start our uh, in-depth study, uh, the Bible, the glorious Word of God, uh, shows to us and teaches us a very strong and a very important part. And that is that God is the God of the universe, according to Genesis 1, Hebrews 11, and so on and so forth. Those are just two, uh, first of all, examples of uh, talking about the great God that has created all things. The God of Scripture is the God of history. And we believe that in our study of uh, Him and uh, the things that He set up for us and the way that we should live today, we realize that if from time to time He has intervened in the affairs of man who we classify ourselves as the created or the creature, if you please. One thing that he is not is merely a God of the past. God the Father whom we serve today is eternal. He is called the I Am, over in Exodus 3 and verse number 14. The one who is and who was and who is to come, that's talked about in Revelations 1 and verse number 4. And those of us today who have assembled here in this congregation to collectively worship him today have a very reverent regard for God the Father, Jehovah. That's who we're talking about. And uh, I believe that all of us believe today that God is in charge. He is the ruler of the things that he has created, and that's everything, even to the talking about this great universe that we're aware of. But one of the things that I want to stress this morning that it's also important for us as Christians to understand exactly how God works in this world today, especially in our lives. And I believe that the Bible plainly teaches if I can just dig it out and get it forth to you so that you can understand. Let's start now with some basic ideas concerning God's activity in the world. First of all, there are several basic ideas that men entertain about this particular subject. Now, I'm just going to name three this morning because time just will not permit for us to do an in-depth study of the different ideas that man has about the providence of God. Uh, the first one, I'm going to step over and put a word on the board. It's called deism. 
And there we have it. And now let me see if I can define it for you and explain to you what some men think about it. Some men, in talking to them or having uh, discussions about God and his word and so on and so forth, uh, their view is the fact that God is an intelligent creator of all things. They believe that. But also, according to a man by the name of Harvey, he says that deism is the view that regards God as an intelligent creature of an independent and law-abiding world, but denies that he providentially guides it or intervenes it in any way with the course of destiny. Now, in essence, what they're saying is that God created all things, then he stepped back, and whatever happens will happen. I don't believe the Bible teaches that today, and I believe that we can uh, show you from God's word exactly how it worked. Now, since these individuals in their discussion of this subject simply point out to us that this is the way it is, God refuses to recognize uh, and doing anything that would intervene in our spiritual well-being, they also will not agree or will not believe that God does anything from his word that we can have uh, the authority of the scriptures talking about miracles, the church, prayer, and I could mention uh, any number of things, but they do not want to say or agree with that God providentially has anything to do with it. It's just that it, it's hands off, brethren, and whatever happens will happen. Well, this is false. Let me give you three reasons to start out in our study. It makes absolutely no sense for the God of the universe to create the world and then adopt this handoff policy. Secondly, it attacks the love, the mercy, the benevolence of God the Father toward his creation. It destroys that, and it does away with it, and that's not the case either. It expressly denies the scriptures and therefore leaves unexplained these great divine events of history that are documented by witnesses. And they're there for our learning. They're there for us to read and to understand. All of us, with the ability to do so, can be involved in the explanation of what God does in this world today. Second basic idea I want to uh, consider with you is some men will, in discussion, affirm to us that God has an activity in this world, but yet he interprets almost everything, I say almost everything, as when it happens, it's a miracle. Now, this is important that we understand uh, what we're talking about right here. For instance, those who are of the Pentecostal persuasion, they assume that virtually every favorable event, especially in the life of a Christian, is a miracle. If you get sick and uh, all of a sudden you're restored, that's a miracle. If you have a, a bad car accident, accident and the car is torn up beyond reason, that you had the ability to walk away from it, for some reason, that's a miracle. And we go on and on and on. Listen, those who believe this notion overlook the fact that although Jehovah God has used miracles in the past, they always occupied a very unique 
role in his plan. In other words, God deemed to use these things for an express purpose. And uh, it's important that we be able to realize the difference. The, the Lord himself, you remember, according to Genesis 1, I'm just going to cite a couple. Psalms 33 uh, show us how he used miracles in the creation and in this revealing of his word and this plan that he sets in motion for us, the creation, to be saved one day, they deny, you see, all right? Well, it was made known to us in Scripture in Exodus 4, verses 1 through 9, Mark 16, and verse number 20. Now, let me tell you right here and stop for just a minute why I'm quoting these Scriptures and not reading them. I don't have time. And in order for me to just plant the seed for us to study this extremely important uh, subject, I'll read a few, but I'll quote most of them. <coughs> Supernatural works are not performed by the God of heaven today. And that's one thing in our lesson I want to stress. This is evidenced by the fact that number one, the purpose of a miracle. If you were asked the question, how would you answer that? What was the purpose of a miracle? It was not only to confirm the word, but it was a production process that put into motion our faith. Our faith, it produced faith. But it's no longer needed to produce our faith. Faith is supplied today by the complete scriptures according to John 20 and Romans 10 verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You see how this works. Secondly, the methods by which these miraculous gifts were bestowed, bestowed upon the world is no longer needed. Absolutely not. We're talking about Holy Spirit baptism, the impartation of the apostles' hands, according to Ephesians 4, Acts 18. Thirdly, we can see according to Scripture over in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13, and Ephesians 4, how it is that the cessation of the miracles was going to come about in this, our lifetime, way back. Thirdly, and this is the view that I think that we all need to have and we need to take in response to this particular subject. The biblical view recognizes that God the Father operates providentially in the world today by means of, yes, natural law. Natural law. Jesus, as the Lord works to bring about man's salvation through spiritual law, his ultimate purpose is enhanced, for sake of a better term, in his sovereign use of God's will to the perfection of one of these days having us all saved. That's the important part that we need to be mindful of today. Why does he use his providence? It's for the production of the plan of salvation that we are involved in today. One of these days we hope to attain heaven. Now, let me define this word providence. The term providence means or is derived from the Latin providentia, and it signifies foresight. Foresight, if you can put that together in your mindset. The word is used to denote the biblical idea, and I want to quote from McClintock, who said that the wisdom and power which God continually exercises in the preservation and government of the world for the ends which he proposed to accomplish. Now then, contrary 
to the idea that God created everything and then step back and lets everything unfold as it will is not true. It has something that God has used down through the centuries to enhance or to make this plan be carried out in a, uh, a very supportive way. Providence, and this is according to a man, a scholar, he calls himself, by the name of Tenney. He said, Providence concerns God's support, care, and supervision of all creation from the moment of the first creation to all the future in eternity. In other words, to simply put it, God is in charge of everything. And that's the focal point of the lesson today is for us to remember as his dear children, we are indeed in the plan that God has created because we have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. We have moved in the right way that God has designed. And we're all a part of that particular movement. The church today is what I'm talking about. Well, this idea of providence is opposed to deism, which asserts God's non-interest in the world. It is the opposite of faith or chance, which sees world events as uncontrollable. God controls everything. It's not something that we just watch happen and, and is documented and witnessed. That's not the case. We can go to scripture, as I'll be able to point out, I hopefully, in this lesson today, and show you how he observes all these things. Now, at this particular point, let me make something very clear. While God ex exercises a general providence over the universe and its creatures as a whole, there is also a special, special providence that God cares and manifests on behalf of us who are his children. And you need to be reminded from time to time, and so do I, that God cares for us because we are his creation. You know, this fact, I think, is really, really cemented in uh, the doctrine of prayer. Does God hear and respond to the petitions of Christians? I believe he does. But also, I believe that there's a condition that goes along with our prayers. Let me illustrate it like this. Suppose I sit in my living room, turn on the TV, munch on popcorn, and just get up to go to the bathroom or get a drink of water, and pray to God fervently that there be a new car in my driveway tomorrow morning. How soon do you think that's going to happen? It will not happen, you see, because that's not the way God designed it. He most assuredly does, though, contribute to our well-being. This is further documented over in John 15, James 5, verse 16, 1 Peter 3, verse 12, and 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15. And these prayers can be answered, but it takes something for us to do our part, you see, along with God's caring for us. Now then... Let me move on down and let's discuss some principles for understanding divine providence. And you can take these things because they're scriptural all the way to the bank, so to speak. It's very important that a consideration on our part be given to certain principles that are involved in the operation of divine providence. That is the providence of God Almighty. Remember, and this is critical, 
remember that any concept of providence that you choose to believe has to coincide and corroborate what the Bible says. You can't have it both ways, just dreaming up some idea about God's doing this or God's doing that and try to make it work. It's, that's not the way it works, folks. Our prayers have to coincide with what the Bible teaches. You can't pray for some off the wall something and expect God to give it to you. But if it coincides with what the Bible teaches, for instance, if I pray for uh, my health, that's scriptural. If I pray for myself to have clothes to close my neck, clothe my naked body, that's scriptural. A house to live in, food to eat, that's all scriptural, you see, and it works because it is from God's word and the Bible in general. All right, the first principle I want to consider with you, God never oper operates providentially in any way that is in conflict with his nature or his revealed will. Talking about the word now, nothing that God does in our lives, in the, the furtherance of the universe, uh, is in conflict because God is in charge of everything. First, let me notice with you in Isaiah 6 and verse number 3. The Bible plainly teaches over there that God is a holy being. And that's critical. It's important. Secondly, he is righteous. Psalms 89 and verse number 14 is just one place that mentions that to us. His acts of providence always will be consistent with these traits. Holiness and right doing. Righteousness, if you please. For instance, God never tempts people to do evil. James, the first chapter, verse 13 and 14. And one could never conclude that God has influenced men providentially to do anything that's wrong. That's not the way God operates. How do we know that? In Romans 9, verse number 17 supports that. When Jehovah raised up Pharaoh and it's interpreted in this particular light. All right. Secondly, providence is in, uh, implemented in harmony with heaven's will and is revealed to us in scripture. And this just simply means to cite one example that since God has revealed the conditions for the remission of our sins, Mark 16, verse 16, and Acts 2:38, one never should make any assumption that it can be done any other way. Let me step to the board now and just take a minute and spend over here. I'm going to put the plan of salvation up on the board and uh, then we'll talk about it just a little bit. Now, these two, one puts us into the body of Christ, hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized, and then when we sin, we repent and we have prayer. All right, those two things sustain us, right? All right, because of the way that we are revealed from God's word this morning, God's providence is going to show to us that there's no other way that we can have this accomplished in our life. The world today, in some quarters, and to me this is so sad, they'll tell us we don't have to be baptized anymore. You can just get rid of it. It's, a, it's a, uh, an outward uh, expression of obedience, and, and, but you don't absolutely don't have to do it. They tell us that uh, we can just let... Jesus Christ, 
the Savior come into our hearts and make an impression and everything will be fine even to the day that we die whether we worship him or whether we do not. And I could go on and on and on about these ideas that are fallacy before God. But listen, in harmony with heaven's will and reveals scripture, sins cannot be remitted any other way than what we've just mentioned and to maintain it in any other way. It just won't work. And that's the way God has given it to us. Second principle this morning, divine providence does not negate or cancel out men's freedom of will. And this is really important too. Let's amplify this uh, proposition that we just mentioned just a moment ago. It has to be stressed that providence never will overthrow one's personal willpower. God's not gonna do that. He absolutely will not. Now then, why would I mention that? Why would I even bring the subject up? Because Augustine and a man by the name of John Calvin, his doctrine is still practiced today, teaches that very thing. Here's what he says. The notion that a man is so depraved in sin that he has lost his power of choice is what these two men have taught in the past and it is still exercised today. The Methodists are one who preaches John Calvinism. And it is simply this, that you and I are so depraved, so encompassed in sin, that we've lost our ability to reason and make any kind of choice on our own. That is a fallacy. All right. Where can we find where we have a freedom of human will? Over just one is in Matthew 23, verse 37. Again in John 5, verse 39 and 40. And Revelations 22:17 specifically tells us that we are a free moral agent and we can make our decisions as we choose to. And that's re that is really rewarding because God has given us that freedom. By his promise or providence, God will never, never coerce a person to do either good or evil. But on the other hand, and I'm gonna show you in just a minute, he can use people to accomplish a divine purpose in either capacity, whether to do good or to, to do evil. And I want to give you some examples. The Chaldeans were, a, the Bible says they were a bitter and they were a hasty nation marching across this, this land where they were uh, dwelling at the time to possess, conquer everything that they come in contact with. If not, they destroyed it. They were a terrible, dreadful, a violent group of people. Well, God used them, you remember, to punish his rebellious people. Because the Lord said of his purpose to bring Babylon against Judah, he said, I'm working a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. Habakkuk verse, or chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. God said, in essence, folks, I'm doing this, yet he used those who were disposed to do evil to accomplish that task. That's providence. That's the way God works, and that's the way he's always worked ever since he created Adam and Eve in the garden and set in motion his plan of salvation for man. Secondly, to use the example of Pharaoh, you remember this old wicked king says that he was hardened in his heart he rebelled against God, Exodus 8 and, 
and chapter 9, but the Lord determined to use him, and here's what he said. For this cause have I made thee, that is Pharaoh, to stand, to show thee my power, that my name may be de declared throughout all the earth. That's in Exodus 9 and verse number 16. And you know what, folks? Here's what's amazing about the whole thing and the gist of it is the fact that 35 plus centuries, we've been talking about that great event. And who won the event? God did. Pharaoh let the people go. Moses took them out. All of a sudden, he hardened his heart and just said, no, I want them back. And he went after them, and they all drowned in the Red Sea. So you see how God works. The providential must be distinguished, though, from the miraculous. And I won't spend a long time on this, but it's important that I mention it. A miracle is God's working on a plane that is above the natural law. I don't know how else to explain it. Providence is his utilization of natural law. In a miracle, the Lord works directly. In providence, he works indirectly and uses certain means to uh, accomplish his end. A man by the name of Watson wrote something that is very uh, interesting to me. I hope it is to you. He said, Providence is the conduct and the direction of the several parts of the universe by a superior intelligent being. The notion of providence is founded upon this truth that the creator has not so fixed and ascertained the laws of nature, not so connected the chain of second causes as to leave the world to itself, but that he still preserves the reins in his own hands and occasionally intervenes, alters, restrains, enforces, suspends, etc., etc., these laws by particular providence. That's just about right, isn't it? That's just about the way God has, has evolved and worked. Now, let me show you, and this is really a simple illustration for you to understand uh, this concept that I'm talking about at this time. Before Mary was known as her, uh, in her sexual relationship, with her husband, Joseph. You remember that she was found with child of the Holy Spirit and subsequently gave birth to the baby Jesus over in Matthew 1 and also Luke 1 is where we find the record. The virgin birth was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy or his sign in Isaiah 7 and verse number 14 and indeed was a miracle. Well, when Mary was impregnated by supernatural act as a result of God's direct power, this was a miracle. And you can call it that and be safe in so doing. But in contrast, listen to this. Hannah of the Old Testament, whose womb, the Bible says, was shut up, 1 Samuel 1 verse 6, prayed fervently over and over and over again that if God would only open up her womb and let her have a child, she would give him all the days of his life to God to serve him faithfully. You remember that this was heard by God, was given a child, and she dedicated him to God Jehovah through all the days of his life. He became the great prophet Samuel, you remember? And this was the providence of God working, you see. So you have miracle, Contrast, providence. 
These two children were sent into the world, the one a prophet, the one the Son of God, the Son of God by a miracle, and the prophet by providence of the other. So you see, it's really quite simple when you get it down and, and explain it and understand it. Number four, in providence, God works behind the scenes. And I'll not spend a long time right here, but a miracle from the very nature of the case is designated to demonstrate something. And it's important that we understand that concept when we study this subject. It's an open, exceedingly dramatic event that is documented by witnesses. That's what it is. Even the enemies of Christianity have noticed that those things that are mentioned in uh, Acts, the fourth chapter, verses 14 through 16, that are termed to be miracles, they admit so. They admit it. That's the way it is. <coughs> providence is quite different. Let me just simply say that sometimes providence is provable and non-provable. Now that sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? But listen, I want to use it in two different ways and see if I can explain it. God works in this particular fashion because the Bible so plainly teaches it that providence is provable. It is a fundamental Bible truth affirmed from beginning to end. We've already mentioned that, so I'll not dwell there for a long time. Listen, uh, providence is non-provable in the sense that no person can point to a particular circumstance in his life, in anybody's life, and say that's absolutely the way it is. Now, I hope everybody understood the statement I just made because that's important. When we assert or when we say to someone, I know that this was a providential inter intervention at work, you can't prove that. And so let's be careful. Let's be careful in, in trying to explain what God's doing as far as providence when we make that statement to someone. Now, we may believe it. We may want it to be that way. And we may strive and say, yes, this is. But we have to be careful. Uh, citing one uh, uh, example is people when they petition Mary, the mother of God, or some saint through prayer to do what they want it to be done is absolutely unprovable and it's meaningless. So, while it's true that God does work in the lives of men, and we believe it does, and they're frequently unaware of it, we may suspect, believe, hope it to be the case, and even act in a way as to accommodate it. But folks, we have to be so careful because the Bible says we walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians the fifth chapter in verse number seven. I'll just cite you two examples and uh, time's getting away, I can see it already. Jehovah used Cyrus, the Persian king, to do what? To deliver the kingdom of Judah from Babylonian captivity. God said, I will gird thee, though thou hast not known me. Secondly, there's certainly no doubt in the mind of a serious Bible student that Esther, you remember, aided God's men, the spies, and keeping them safe from the old evil individual by the name of Haman. He said, Mordecai said this in Esther 4, verse 14, And who knoweth whether thou art not come to the kingdom of such a time as this? 
In conclusion to the lesson today, and I'll try to bring it all together now, I want to show you the scope of our God. I want to show you how vast uh, this divine providence has become or is. From the vastness of the universe, and we know how great that is, we can't even assume that we know all there is to know about how big this universe is. Even down, folks, to the counting of the hairs on your head and mine, God is in charge. God knows everything about everybody. And I want to see if I can show you some Bible examples. First of all, talking about this universe. In a grand and very great exaltation of Christ Jesus, the writer of Hebrews declared that the Savior, the Bible says, is upholding all things. Over in Colossians, or Hebrews 1 verse 3, he says that the word is his power. That's what holds and consists and holds all things together. Now, in Colossians 1 verse 17, in him all things consist. And in studying that word consist, it comes from a Greek word, uh, synistomy, which means it stands together. It is in workable force because it's together or it's cohesiveness. Christ is the controlling and unifying force in nature, according to Robinson. Now, he's a scholar that I read quite a bit, and I believe that he's got this right. Christ is a controlling and unifying force in nature. The word of Almighty God causes all things to stand together or consist. That's the way it is, and that's the way it's been designed. All right, now the forces of nature. God is in control of the forces of nature. We realize that as we've already studied in detail. He maintains a continuity of the seasons. Genesis 8, verse 22. He covers the heavens with clouds, prepares rain for the earth, makes grass to grow up on the mountains. Psalms 147. He controls the sun and stars. Job 9. By his breath, ice is given. Job 37. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the hoarfrost like ashes. He casts forth his ice like morsel and will stand before his cold. Who will stand before his cold? He send out, sends out his work and melts them, causes his wind to blow and waters to flow, Psalms 147. And he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave you from heaven rains and fruitful seasons. That's all biblical. That's what God does. That's who he is. Acts 14 and verse number 17 further substantiates this. Let me talk to you very, very briefly about animal creatures. Since the life of every living thing is in the hand of God, according to Job 12 verse 10, it's not a surprise or should not be a surprise to you or me to learn that God maintains and uses his animal creation. Yes, he does. Listen. Animals neither sow, they neither reap, nor gather up in barns. Well, what about them? God feeds them. Matthew 6, verse 26. He gives to the beast his food and to the young ravens which cry. Psalms 147 again. The young lions roar after they pray it and seek their food from God. Psalms 104. Folks, listen. There's not even a bird that falls to the ground that God doesn't know about. If he can number the hairs on an individual's head, 
He knows everything about everybody, and even your thoughts are amplified in his ear if you're a child of God. That's scary. We cannot conceal ourselves from God Almighty. We're an open book. God not only exercises this general providence that we're talking about over the animal kingdom, but he can use his creatures in a very special, a very marvelous way. For example, you remember he provided a ram caught in the thicket by his horns for Abraham to use as a sacrifice. Genesis 22, verse 13. He sent quails into the bread brought by ravens. 1 Kings 17, verse 6. The Lord sent fiery servants to bite the Israelites in Numbers 2. He sent she-bears to punish the lads of Bethel, 2 Kings 2, and used a lion to slay a disobedient young prophet, 1 Kings 13. He shut the lion's mouths to protect David in Daniel chapter 2. The causes were so magnificent, you can't ignore them. So this deism that we're talking about here this morning at the outset of our, our lesson, it's, it's wrong. It's just not the way it is. God takes care of his own. Now, let me talk about God in the nations. Since the fall of man, Almighty God has been working a plan designed to bring into motion and to affect the redemption of us who are sinful. When he brought Christ into this old world, it was the culmination of the ultimate price that was to be paid for my sins and yours. Terry prayed a wonderful prayer this morning. He talked about this very son of God and what he did for every one of us. It was in God's plan of things and he providentially has brought this to being. And today we, contrary to what these people believe and others in the world, when we obey from the heart that form of doctrine, we become what? His children. We're born into the family of God. And we can maintain it when we realize that we have done publicly something that is not right in the sight of God, whether by our own knowledge or somebody pointing it out to us, can repent, confess our sins, and the church will pray with us and for us, and we can maintain continually this relationship that God has prepared for us. Last but not least upon this little idea, let me talk to you about a special providence for the people of God. That's us. That's those of us who are assembled here today. Does the person, those of us today, who are genuinely devoted to serving God the Father have any promise of providential advantage in this world. Well, I'm here to declare to you today that we certainly do. And I believe that after studying this even more, I believe it. While it is true to say that God sends his rains, rain upon the just and the unjust, that plainly is taught in Matthew chapter 5, it is not to the alien but to the saint that this is promised in Philippians 4 verse 19. Listen closely. And my God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches. Who owns the universe and all the things found therein? He is the God of heaven who can give us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Why? Because he providentially cares for us and he wants us to be saved in heaven one day. That is the ultimate goal that God is performing through different means. 
I think that uh, sometimes we just forget and we discount the wonderful things that God does for us as, as his children, and we ought not to do that. The book of Job reveals that even the righteous can suffer, suffer from time to time, and uh, even the robbers do prosper, Job 12, verse 6. So there's a contrast there. However, this does not cancel out the truth that providence operates in a special way for us who are children of the Almighty God. Bible history is clear concerning this. Now, in conclusion, and I'm just about through, I want to use the Apostle Paul for a direct example simply because on Wednesday evenings we've been studying the book of Acts, and this really fits. There is a number of instances of providence found in God's word in the life that surrounds the Apostle Paul. Here it is. On his third missionary trip, Paul from Corinth in Greece penned his epistle to the Romans, Acts 20, Romans 16. In Romans 1, though, verses 9 and 10, he said, and he mentioned how that he continually made a request that is in the present now. He continually, all the time, is what it means, he made this request. He said that I may come unto you in joy through the will of God, Romans 15. God will answer that prayer in his own providential time frame, in his own way. Now let me notice with you the sequence of things and you'll see how this unfolds. First of all, Paul returns to Jerusalem when he's arrested for allegedly defiling the temple. That's found in Acts 21. We just studied that. In the night, the Lord tells him that he must bear witness in Rome. Chapter 23, verse 11. We're going to study that pretty soon. Secondly, to save his life from the Jewish mob, you remember that the Roman leaders have Paul taken to Caesarea by night. Now this is all done for a reason, so stay with me. Here he's imprisoned for two years, finally exercising his right as a Roman citizen, he appeals to Caesar. Why? Because he knows he has certain alienable rights under his jurisdiction. Number four, in the early autumn of AD 60, or approximately that time frame, he's put on a ship for Rome. En route, their shipwrecked and all hope of being saved from the disaster is said to be lost. Not going to survive. They're all going to lose their lives. In the night, an angel appeared to God and promised, Thou must stand before Caesar, he says again. The following spring, safe and sound, Paul and his company arrived in Rome. Is that prayers answered? Is that God's providence? This is the way he works. This is the way he wants us to know that this providential care can work in our lives. Now, we don't have the time, as I already mentioned, we're limited to study another two verses of scripture, but I want to read them. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse number 13. Listen to this closely. God is faithful, we all know that, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation make also the way to escape that you may be able to endure it. 
A faithful child of God will never be put in a circumstance he can't overcome. Does that excite you? Does that make us feel good about being a member of the church? It absolutely should. Secondly, and we know that to them that love God, all things work together for good, even to them that are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, verse 28. Other places we could cite that cohesiveness would bring us together to realize that God cares for us. As long as we're faithful, God will see to it that we're taken care of. That's providential care, if you please. Last, this morning, I'm going to read something. Belief in providence determines many of the basic attitudes of true piety. The knowledge that God watches and works in our lives teaches us to wait on him in faithfulness, with the most amount of humility that we can possess and patiently for vindication and deliverance from this old world and the things that are found therein that are evil. David talked about that in Psalms 37 and James mentioned it in chapter 5 and verse number 7. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.